Welcome to Religion and Global Challenges, the podcast of the Cambridge Interfaith Programme that is brought to you from the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge. I'm Malene Schäfers, a British Academy Newton International Fellow at the Faculty. Thanks for tuning in today for our second episode on the politics of martyrdom. Well, last time we heard about new martyrs in contemporary Russia and Cyprus from Dr. Victoria Fomina. Today, I am joined by Dr. Maria Rashid. Maria will talk to us about how affects and emotions related to martyrdom and sacrifice sustain militarism in Pakistan, but require careful management to become effective. She is the author of Dying to Serve, Militarism, Affect and the Politics of Sacrifice in the Pakistan Army, which came out just last year with Stanford University Press. Maria and I talked about the role that emotions related to grief and suffering, but also pride and sacrifice, play in mobilizing thousands of young Pakistani men every year to join the Pakistan army. It is affect that makes these fantasies, quote-unquote, come alive, these fantasies of martyrdom and glory for the nation-state, and also it is affect that also destabilizes them. We also focused on how women's grief and suffering are curated very carefully in the army's management of affect. So gender becomes a very critical frame that runs through the book to highlight how women and the ideas of the feminine are indispensable to the war project and to the militarism project. And we discussed the relation of nationalism, religion and the military. From my reading of the military is that it's very much a modern institution which actively and very carefully crafts a certain kinds of religious subjectivity. Before we begin talking about the book itself, maybe you can briefly introduce yourself to the listeners and explain a little bit what kind of work you do. Thank you for inviting me to speak at this podcast. My name is Ismaria Rashid and I live in Pakistan and I've lived here for much of my life. And over the last 20 years, I've been a women's rights activist and a gender practitioner and a researcher with a special focus on violence and masculinities. I've been trained as a psychologist and uh, For a few years, I've also worked actively with survivors of sexual and domestic violence and uh, and was a director for a national women's rights uh, organization here in Pakistan that, that worked on these issues. About eight years ago, I decided to take a break from active work and enrolled into the School of Oriental and African Studies into a PhD program uh, in politics. And so I have a less than linear path you know, that I have followed towards academia. And for many, it seems very convoluted. But for me, I have always been interested in violence, really. And so both the conditions that make it possible and the conditions that allow it to be constructed in such a way that it becomes socially sanctioned. Um, so sometimes ignored and invisible, as in the cases, as in the case of child sexual abuse and violence against women, that part of my earlier work, and sometimes glorified and ennobled in the, as in the case of war. So attaching these conditions of social sanction of violence to the modern state and not just to trajectories of culture or religion or even history, although all those considerations remain relevant, is something that has been of deep interest to me and hence my 
interest in militarism, uh, which I see as a social practice, which is as violent and as modern as can be, and, and in the case of Pakistan, affixed uh, neatly onto the state itself. So yeah, I think that that's just a very quick, brief introduction of me and my interests. So the way in which I read the book, and the way you kind of set up the inquiry, you talk about the way in which the Pakistan army is able to draw on a very broad pool of applicants who would like to serve in the Pakistan army. So conscription um, is not mandatory, but people voluntarily enroll to the army. And so there's this kind of paradox where you ask the question, why would people want to enroll in a job that carries very, very high risks? The likelihood of injury or even death is quite high when you work as a soldier in the Pakistan army. So the question then becomes, how come that people are so willing to enroll in the army that the army can even choose amongst the broad pool of applicants. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how you approach this kind of question of what draws people to the army and maybe how martyrdom figures within that. So if I could just set that up a little historically also in the context of Pakistan. Um, so Pakistan has had its fair share of wars since its formation after the partition of British India in 1947. So these have been wars with external enemies and also within its own borders. And this pension for war demands obviously a ready supply of troops. And yet, as you said, the Pakistan army has never had to resort to conscription and remains to date an all-volunteer force. Um, and according to the Pakistan army induction data that I was allowed to look at uh, for 2013, on average, the Pakistan army gets over 130,000 young men every year who apply. And it only selects about 38,000 of these every year. So uh, as you can see, it has a very broad pool to draw upon and there's no shortage of labor for the military. And this voluntary nature of enlistment in Pakistan has often been explained as a function of economic desperation. And I don't want to downplay this motivator or driver either. It is one of the key motivators or drivers that push people towards the military. But I think this nuance, this requires a little bit more nuance, this desire for enlistment. And I try and do that within the book by looking at history and also looking at contemporary politics and policies of recruitment in the military in Pakistan. So close to 50 years after partition in what is called the martial race hangover, the idea that men from certain areas of undivided India made for better soldier material persisted in the Pakistan army. And so men from the rain-fed hilly tracts of Punjab and parts of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, two provinces in Pakistan, were famed as um, the martial race or were famed as belonging to martial districts. And these districts were steadily cultivated by the British Indian Army during its rule here. And in these districts, in addition to economic desperation, there is now there now exists a kind of self-valorization of its population as a military class, an almost entrenched racialized logic, which goes side by side with the fact that years of generational investment has also meant that these districts have become specialized zones of recruitment in which livelihood has become reduced to a single activity military service. So in, a, in other words, I think what I'm trying to say is that the district population sees itself as a martial race because of years and years of being honed as the military's labor pool. And also because over, over the years, there are very few options that actually exist for other livelihood opportunities, right? So these 
kinds of factors push people towards military service from these areas. However, in 2001, the military initiated what it calls the National Integration Policy that sought to enlist soldiers from across the country. And the military now seeks to attract its newer quote-unquote martial class through a blend of both material incentives and embedding a positive image of the military in these areas. And so clearly, if you look at what the military does now to attract its soldier class as from across Pakistan, other provinces that have not been used as labor pool in the past, you see that economic incentives are not sufficient on their own, right? Because the job contract, as you just said, demands much more than just, uh, you know, your labor. It demands your willingness to also die for your work. So it requires a building of trust and a certain valence of the institution within these areas. And that has to be steadily created. So the military sets about building paternalistic ties between itself and its new catchment areas and builds a presence, a visible presence through investment infrastructure in these areas, uh, setting up cadet schools and colleges, military cantonments, hospitals, recruitment centers, and regiment centers. And despite this, it often has to relax its criteria in these newer recruitment areas. So clearly the apparent military readiness is something that requires time and is not a function of economic desperation alone. So that's sort of the recruitment politics of it. And then, of course, in addition to this, there is this sustained effort that the military invests in creating its image as defender of Pakistan's geographical and ideological boundaries. Huh? Um, so since partition, Pakistan has relied on the construction of a more ideological and religiously motivated imagining of the soldier who defends against the non-Muslim threat, is a defender of Islam as well as the boundaries of the country. So textbooks uh, will glorify war and valorize Muslim warriors, as well as military soldiers who seek martyrdom and defend their country. So considerable popular culture, images, literary texts further exalt militaristic nationalism and the ideas of shahadat, uh, which is martyrdom in uniform, and national rituals are normally replete with military symbols in Pakistan. So this is also evident in how the military trains its soldier, a training that I talk about in the book, uh, and I argue that it represents a very controlled instrumentalization of religion and appropriation, which is akin to the largest state project in Pakistan. So the military borrows very generously from popular concepts of Islam that valorize martyrdom or shahadat and uses them as very fertile ground for instilling a particular form of religious and nationalist subjectivities in the soldier. So in addition, in the book, I also argue that soldier subjectivities are also formed by army discipline and affective regulation that involves building strong attachment and bonds and loyalty to the unit and its fellow comrades and deliberately builds upon primordial notions of honor and prestige. Yeah? So to answer your question now, I think what I'm trying to argue in the book is that it is these systems of patronage and also these technologies of power. And so material incentives are just one category, but we also need to understand the historically intense racialized logics of, of recruitment, the controlled instrumentalization of religion, and the deeply affective ties that are crafted by the military institution that I believe allow the military to not only attract, but also maintain its labor force. I think that gets to the heart really of the kind of multi-layered analysis that's necessary in order to understand a complex phenomenon such as dying for the nation, if you want to put it in these more nationalist terms. And I would like us to maybe zoom in a little bit on this question of 
affective management, management of affect and emotion that you mentioned as one of these layers that render dying for the nation, serving for the nation, an attractive job, quote unquote. And so maybe you can go a little bit more into detail in explaining to us what kind of affects and emotions are managed within the army and uh, with both families and conscripts and what effects, to what effects are these affects and emotions harnessed? I think one way that I can do this, which will probably make this much more clearer, is if I look at them in the context of commemoration ceremonies uh, in the military, because I begin the book with that. And for me, the national stage of commemoration or the large spectacles of mourning that the military puts out, uh, one sort of very significant way to showcase how affect is deployed by the military. So, and just to give it a little bit of context, since much of my work and much of my research uh, happened between 2013 and 2017, where Pakistan the military was engaged as a frontline state fighting the global war on terror within Pakistan. So some of my sort of research or analysis comes from this particular period. So where war commemorations have been a regular feature of military custom in Pakistan, these practices accelerated as military operations in Northwest as part of the global war on terror intensified and soldier casualties began to mount. And these Newark ceremonies to commemorate the soldiers dying in these wars were also instituted in response to the growing unease within soldiers and the rural environment where these soldiers came from around a war against a Muslim enemy. So fatwas, which are rulings on a point of Islamic law, were issued by religious and religious political parties that soldiers dying in these wars were not shaheed for they were fighting America's war or, and therefore they should not be even buried in Muslim graveyards. And the word shaheed that is being contested here has a broader application in Islamic faith, but here it is being used in the context of dying in the battle waged in defense of an Islamic state. So this honorific is used by the Pakistan military for, so, for its soldiers that die in combat. And up until this point, there had been little or no contention to this usage. But this particular war, this notion was contested for the first time because it was the first probably time that the Pakistan army was engaged in a sustained war effort against an enemy that claimed Islam as its primary identity. So in response, the military declared a separate day of marking the dead, and the military public relations wings instituted what were called Yom Shohda or Martyrs' Day ceremonies. And as the unpopular war raged on in the Northwest, these annual mega events were held every year in garrisons across the country, and, and one large ceremony was held within military headquarters in Pakistan. This particular event was held every year and was attended by large numbers of next of kin, large numbers of civilian, government and media representatives, foreign dignitaries, and was beamed live across the nation on all private and state-run channels. So coming back to your question on affect, so the grievability of military lives is on full display in these ceremonies um, that are replete with images of military dead and their families. And these grand extravaganzas are a mix of live and recorded testimonies of family members, including ceremonial military parades, patriotic anthems, and these segments are stitched together with fiery oratory on the meaning of sacrifice and honorable death. So one way to understand these ceremonies is as states investing in the management of grief through carefully crafted commemorative rituals of mourning. And the focus is to curtail dissent that arises you know, in situations of war after massive bereavement. But instead, 
I try and position affect and grief not as inconvenient facts of war, but as central to militarism in Pakistan. And I examine these spectacles as sites where complicity to the project is created, especially to an, an unpopular war. And I borrow from Catherine Wardray's work on political appropriation of dead bodies. So why are these bodies so amenable to appropriation? So one, bodies cannot speak but can be spoken for, and this ambiguity makes them useful. Secondly, bodies inspire awe as they bring to surface questions and fears about the meaning of life and death. And thirdly, they allow an engagement with affect and emotion. And so all of these make bodies symbolic capital. And I extend these claims to include the families of dead soldiers whose grief acts as symbolic capital and remains central to how the narrative of sacrifice and martyrdom for the nation is kept alive. So in de deconstructing these ceremonies, one way is to, of course, look at the script and the narrative itself, which speaks to discourse of kinship, gender, religion, to which the nationalist subject is often imagined. But it is also the craft that I pay attention to, the creation of an ambience that is critical to the script, the affect that is deliberately produced and harnessed within these performances and spectacles. So, um, so these televised national commemorative ceremonies aim to entertain, to inspire through scale and color as much as through what is actually presented on stage. And the entire performance is built around death that is often brutal and violent and, and grief and loss are central themes. So it plunges you into deep wretched sadness as you watch the mother of a dead soldier smile through her tears and then it pulls you up within minutes on waves of pride with visions of smiling young muscular men in combat clothes and sounds of machine gun fire and tales of development and prosperity of a nation that is at peril but also resilient because of the blood of its uniformed young men. Um, so the audience is in these ceremonies is often in tears as testimonies of family members play out on stage. And what's interesting to watch is how the camera captures this display of emotion and it shifts from the stage with remarkable and almost obsessive frequency from the stage to the audience. Um, what is often marked and typical in these spectacles is the composure despite heavy grief of the families, a composure and stoicism that is carefully constructed, a delicate oscillation between crippling grief and resolute commitment to more sacrifice. And uh, this composure is often at odds with, you know, the very ready display of tears in the audience. Um, and these affective flows is what I've tried to capture between the families and the immediate audience. And I argue they are critical to complete the spectacle for, for the nation that is watching these events on TV. Uh, so there is a need to project the devastation of loss and grief, and yet the families cannot fulfill that purpose because that destabilizes the script of willing and grateful martyrdom. So the immediate audience that represents the nation and the family that represents the institution of the military through these performances become locked together in an emotive relationship through the transmission of affect. Um, and grief and sacrifice become the very powerful, authentic tropes through which the military and the nation then start to communicate with each other. So these soldiers and their families are then subjects of militarism, I argue, who stand at the center of war, which make war and martyrdom not only possible, but also worthwhile. And there are other ways that I talk about affect in terms of the training of the soldier, how that's deployed, or in terms of the disciplining of family members within rural spaces uh, at the time of the funeral in the immediacy of death of the soldier. So I think the argument really is that 
AFID becomes a technology of rule, which allows the military a certain hold over its immediate subjects, soldiers, and its indirect subjects, the larger citizenry or the nation that watches these performances. One of the things that I really appreciate about your analysis there, um, and I remember in the book at some point, you recount, I think, um, at one of those Martyrs uh, Day celebrations, how there's a moment where you interact with the next of kin of a martyr, and in a private moment, an intimate moment of interaction, they talk about, I think it's the mother talks about her grief, perhaps about her sense of loss and disappointment. But you're quite clear And you say that it's after months of interacting with the families that you get to a point where they share with you this kind of very personal, intimate sentiments. But at the same time, you also highlight that you don't want to see that as some sort of authentic core that is overwritten by a military propaganda. But it's much more complex than that in, in the sense that those emotions of grief and sadness that we could see as authentic are actually part and parcel of the entire performance and the spectacle of martyrdom. It's not that there is a false performance opposed to an authentic emotional self, but that emotional self is a product of the entire mobilization around martyrdom, if I understand you correctly. Yeah, I think um, you've summarized it very well. And I'm glad that you captured that nuance because that's something that I struggled with myself as well in the beginning. Uh, I think I went into it somewhat naively and, and thinking that there will be a public face to this and then there will be more private and more intimate stories that over time will start coming through these more scripted narratives of willing sacrifice and martyrdom. But and this is something that sort of a realization that sort of dawned on me as I went deeper into my fieldwork during my ethnography in these villages that it's very hard to separate the complexity of what the lived experience of martyrdom is for these families uh, and how they are in surprising ways the critical narratives as well as the very status narratives tend to lie side by side and it may pose you know for us a challenge in terms of trying to understand them and seeing them as sometimes contradictory where at one moment or point the, the father or the mother can talk about the glory of sacrifice and all that it has brought to them and how they are very thankful for it and at the same in the same breath sometimes also talk about very deep regret and unease about what's happened to their young child and, and very deep regret about not being able to save him. And that is the lived experience of these people where they're able to live with these two almost uh, realities which for us seem contradictory. And I think the way that I could sort of come to understand them was through the lens of affect. And I've argued in the book that it is affect that makes these fantasies quote-unquote come alive, these fantasies of martyrdom and glory for the nation state. And also it is affect that also destabilizes them because it is through the expression of intense grief and affect that they're able to then bring up ambivalent understandings that challenge uh, military scripts as well. So through intense grief, whether that's of a mother, you know, who will, because of her grief, will be able to express and go beyond the very, you know, scripted notions of sacrifice and question why my son died and whether this death is meaningful or whether you know this death is meaningless to her and for her to be able to say that it is affect that allows her that space so so I see affect as a very important lens in my work. Maybe to, to move from here into the question of gender that is also really central to your analysis in the book you already mentioned briefly that um, the Pakistan army draws on patronage relationships and that it invests a lot in cultivating close relationships with the families of martyrs and conscripts. And I was wondering how gender features in this 
cultivation of relationships with the families. So gender becomes a very critical frame that runs through the book. Uh, and not just because the book looks at militarism, but also to highlight how women and the ideas of the feminine are indispensable to the war project and to the militarism project. So we have considerable feminist scholarship, which tells us you know, about gendered imaginaries, the notion of the masculine soldier who protects women and the home and protects the nation. Um, and women are actually indispensable in very material ways as producers of sons, as providers of gendered labor within homes, and also symbolically as a way to legitimize wars. And of course, this is not limited to Pakistan. There's considerable scholarship that you know looks at war as a larger militarism in, in various contexts and brings out these gendered imaginaries. So the book is very much about these women and is also very much about the notion of the feminine and where that's placed in the military institution. So the book also looks at the training of the soldier and how it treats the idea of the feminine and how becoming a soldier involves or calls for almost erasing the feminine. And then it is also very much about uh, the women whose sons and husbands die in military uniforms. So their lived experiences and the way they are pulled into politics of martyrdom in the military. So it looks at the feminine and how it's placed within militarism and it also looks at women as wives, as widows and as mothers and how they're pulled into military scripts. And specifically because my interest was looking at affect, and so women's affect is treated very differently at different points in time. Within commemorative ceremonies of the military, the female subject's grief is deliberately invoked. So just like I spoke about the larger Yom Shohda ceremonies where often it's there's a focus on the female next of kin. So And the grand finale in these ceremonies is often reserved for the mother who will you know, various soldiers' mothers will come on stage and speak about their loss. Um, so here, her ability to invoke grief is vital for these spectacles of mourning, right? And so she becomes a very central figure. But in the rural space, at the time of the military funeral, the focus of management of grief is to discipline and to contain, to restrain and to shape the grief in some ways, yeah? Um, so here, the very, the very raw and private grief is managed through military procedures and protocols in terms of how the funeral is held, what practices of mourning are allowed, what are not allowed even in terms of how much access is allowed to the body and the coffin of the soldier, in order to, as much as possible, control and restrict affect in these spaces. And these, these female figures often become suspect figures because they're looked upon as beings who, who are almost primitive and are not able to process this grief well, and their affect can be destructive, right? So very much the effort at this point through military procedures and protocol is to contain this affect. And so the book tries to argue that militarism extends outside the institution to subjects that may not have signed up for duty and yet are very much pulled centrally into these narratives and that military masculinity is in fact reproduced, reconfigured and contested through the bodies of non-masculine and non-military women. And I say contested because in my fieldwork I found that women could speak in ways that allowed disaffection or ambivalence uh, more easily than men could. And women often spoke in anger about this management of affect at the time of the military funeral, and they felt almost like they were not allowed to be part of it, which is in contrast to how they're treated within larger national military commemorative ceremonies, where they often become the central figure, almost you know emblematic of the kind of mourning that the military desires for martyrdom. So in addition to the positionality of women within the armies broader project of managing affects related to grief and suffering, um, these affects that arise 
from violent death within military service. Another figure that you focus on um, in the book is the injured veteran, so the soldier, the conscript, who goes to war um, but doesn't fall mud or is not killed but comes back injured. And so can you say a little bit more about how that subject position features within the militarist universe and what kind of ambivalences are at stake in that case? So the figure of the disabled soldier is very interesting. And to be honest, when I set up my sort of research frame, I didn't foresee that I would be engaging with the disabled soldier. And that sort of speaks to the, the fact that, you know, in, in these narratives of war that the military puts out, the figure of the soldier is often not very visible. But however, when I went into rural spaces, soldiers who had been maimed or disabled in these wars were very much present. Uh, and I was kind of forced to address this gap in my own understanding. So so this invisibility of this figure became very important to me to understand. And, and this is invisibility is interesting because in this war in the Northwest, in Pakistan, that the military has been fighting in, has resulted in, of course, the deaths of over 6,000 army soldiers. And this is declared uh, soldiers that have died. But the number of those who have been disabled is well over two times. And some reports suggest three times that number. Um, and despite this, newspaper reports of Pakistani military operations uh, will carry often headlines of those who die. And with the many more number that is injured or maimed for life is, you know, gets hidden in fine print inside, um, you know, inside the sort of news itself. Uh, and we see similar erasures in how the military sets up the commemorative ceremonies that I just spoke about, which revolve very much around the figure of the Shaheed or the martyr. Uh, and so the Shaheed is far more visible within nationalist discourse, um, as is the able-bodied soldier that continues to live and continues to fight for the military and the nation. And this setting up of a distinction between the dead and the disabled when commemorating or counting war casualties, it conveys one, of course, the fact that the military would obviously like to minimize the, the casualties suffered in a particular war. I mean, that's that's just the pragmatics of war, right? And it sets the disabled soldiers as not really casualties. But looking at, obviously, the, the kind of disablement that has happened within this war, I argue that this erasure is reflective of a deep discomfort in giving these quote-unquote incomplete bodies a space and narrative of sacrifice and glory. And I believe that's because of two reasons. One, you know, this is a military that aims at the careful manufacture of functional, masculine, and predictable body. And it really is confounded in its encounter with disablement. And is very uneasy with the kind of affect that these feminized, quote-unquote, bodies can invoke in others, right? If affect is a technology of rule that the Pakistan military uses, this is not the kind of affect that it wants to invoke in those that watch these ceremonies. Because disablement, especially in Pakistan's context, is something that is feminized, it is often looked upon with pity. And so that is not the kind of affect that it wants to invoke in those that watch these performances. And the disabled military subject represents, therefore, an anomalous category that occupies the spaces of the dead and the living. Uh, so he's still a man, and yet he's as helpless as, and I sp spoke briefly about this idea of the dreaded feminine, which is very much part of military training where the soldier must distance himself from all all ideas of weakness or femininity so this man is now you know feminized and so 
distance that has been so carefully created uh, within these military subjectivities becomes almost very problematic to keep then. And so the disabled soldier becomes a liminal figure who refuses categorization and threatens these very carefully crafted military narratives of glorious and manly sacrifice. So that's, I think, one reason why we don't see him as often. The other is that bodies of soldiers that die lend themselves to appropriation by the militarism project. So they're constructed as fallen soldiers whose bodies can be spoken for, they can be objectified and wrapped in national flags. And this is a body politics that is hard to extend to the main soldier. These bodies cling to life and speak their own version of sacrifice and suffering, a suffering that is burdened with a continued sense of loss and lives that have changed forever, a loss that is further compounded with their inability to find their place within military discourse of sacrifice. What you just said reminds me of what I think Catherine Verdery writes about at some point in her book on the political lives of dead bodies. She says that dead bodies are sort of useful to all kinds of political projects because they don't speak back, right? Whereas obviously the disabled soldier has the possibility to speak back. So I was just wondering as you were talking whether in the fieldwork that you did with disabled soldiers, whether you ever felt that there was a moment of critique emerging from that experience that they had gone through or resistance against um, the militarist project in one way or another? Um, so I spoke to a lot of soldiers who'd been in combat who were still serving. And then I spoke to soldiers who had been in combat and then have, had suffered you know, severe disability and were now at home or, or had been appointed in so-called feminized jobs within the military, such as gardening or uh, cooking in the kitchen and so on. So the ways in which these soldiers will describe war and, and the moment of disability or even just their experience of war tends to be much more affective in the sense of it being you know it's grittier it's harder it's more I hesitate to use the word more realistic because then I guess I'm sort of putting my own idea of what war is but it seemed much more real Uh, it seemed much more painful and there was less need to resort to these scripts of glory and sacrifice and bravery in the moment, the heat of the battle and all the, you know, tales of heroism and so on. Whereas with serving soldiers, you found those sort of that appearing much more. And yet I don't want to suggest that even the serving soldiers actually glorified war. And in many ways, they spoke about deaths of soldiers, uh, fellow comrades, uh, and the kind of, you know, experiences of war as feeling a sense of dissociation with what they were doing in actual combat, uh, being able to, you know, reliving what happened to them in that moment and, and carrying that back with them, being unable to forget what had happened and the way it affected their relationships back home. So in some ways, there was much less glorification from both sets of soldiers than I had expected there to be. One thing that I would like to get back to is something that you mentioned at the very beginning of our talk, which is the way in which martyrdom is a trope that emerges from a religious context um, and that has been picked up very centrally by the Pakistani state. And you also mentioned briefly the way in which the global war on terror and Pakistan's participation in that has led to new challenges in reinterpreting what martyrdom might mean under those circumstances. So could you elaborate a little bit on how you see martyrdom within the context of the modern nation state, nonetheless working and drawing on 
certain religious tropes and how you see religion and nationalism uh, working together here? I think with particular reference to Pakistan's own context, the use of religion as a tool of legitimation, you know, has a very long and sort of complicated history in Pakistan. Its roots really lie very much in the genesis of the Pakistan state itself. So the way the state understands itself as an Islamic state is very much beyond the project of the military itself. Uh, and as I said earlier, the military obviously draws upon this in its training of the soldier, in the kind of uh, image that it builds for the rest of the nation, in its own understanding of what its quote-unquote job is, right? So it heavily draws upon religion. And that is not to argue or say that uh, there's also this understanding that I hear often about this idea of martyrdom being something very, very significant and this Islamization, so to speak, of the military being, uh, you know, to a point where it becomes almost an Islamic army, so to speak. And I kind of find that uncomfortable because from my reading of the military through my work is that it's very much a modern institution which actively and very carefully crafts a certain kinds of religious subjectivity. So I call this a controlled instrumentalization of religion. Um, so very much the military sees Islam and its associated notions of martyrdom and shahadat as something that is very important for the soldier to imbibe. And yet it decides what kind of Islam and how much of this religious indoctrination does it want to have within its soldier. So that is something that the military handles very carefully. There's a chapter in the book which looks at religion specifically and I talk about how the cleric within the training institution of the military is very much under the commanding officer and he, he is carefully scrutinized in terms of the kinds of messages that he gives, right? I want to emphasize that yes, it is a nationalism that is infused with religion very much, but yet it is not something that supersedes the militarist sort of focus of the trainee as well. But because it uses Islam and because much of the training of the soldier, the focus within his education on say, the Pakistan and Pakistan's history is very much religiously infused, it did face a dilemma during the war on terror because you know you had now an enemy that also spoke about martyrdom, also spoke about shahadat, who also read the kalima and used that very much as its primary identity. So the Pakistan army has fought within its borders against fellow Muslims, so to speak, but then the identity that it was fighting against were ethnicized, right? The bone of contention wasn't interpretations of Islam, right? So this war is different. And it had a much harder time in shifting that focus because it had focused so much on this infidel, kafir, uh, Hindu army that it was supposed to be fighting. Uh, so enemy construction takes time. Uh, and I think initially it, it sort of faced that challenge, but now very much the challenge is that these people that we are fighting against are technically not Muslims. Yeah, So it now questions the Muslimness of the enemy and it, it now has a different kind of Islam that it teaches its soldier. If I understand you correctly, in a way, then how we can read your book is not so much as yet another book about martyrdom and Islam, which we've seen, you know, so much rolled out within this whole knowledge production in relation to quote-unquote Islamic radicalism, you know, suicide operations. The kind of reading that you offer us of martyrdom as religious is not to say that this is specific to Islam or specific to an Islamic state. What you're actually showing us is how this is 
part and parcel of the modern nation state and of how the modern nation state draws on, you know, be it Islamic, be it Christian, be it whatever else kind of sentiments and manages them in order to harness specific kind of affects and forms of attraction and a willingness to sacrifice. For me, that's a very, very important distinction. And I'm glad you've reiterated that because I started when I, you know, when we started talking today, I started with saying that violence for me is very much attached to the modern state and not just religion or history or culture. And I think for me, that distinction is important because that's how I, you know, I understood the institution that I was studying and how it used religion and appropriated religion in a certain way. And I think it's a particularly important intervention at this point when, you know, there has been, particularly in certain mainstream media, there's, you know, there's very much ingrained culturalist reporting on any kind of violence happening in the Muslim world, which is obviously very problematic. So, you know, your intervention in that sense is really, really important. I I wish there were more studies of militarism that, you know, went beyond these grand narratives and explanation of militarism that, you know, studies around militarism tend to focus more on. I think it's a fascinating sort of line of uh, inquiry, studies that look at war in more intimate ways and try and understand how soldiers and families and their lives are affected by war. There's this also this space where you can try and understand those that do violence and, and the kind of consequences that it has on their own lives. There's value in looking at that and analyzing that as well. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Religion and Global Challenges about how martyrdom and sacrifice are central to Pakistan's nationalist project but require the army's careful management of affects and emotions related to grief and suffering. There will be more episodes about the politics of martyrdom, as well as other topics coming up, so do tune in and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find additional material about this episode and more information about previous episodes on our website at interfaith.cam.ac.uk. Thank you.